Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and each week we scour the internet looking for interesting new books, and we interview the authors of those books. And this week, I'm very pleased to say we have Susan Carl on the show, and we'll be talking about her terrific new book, Defining the Struggle, National Organizing for Racial Justice, 1880 to 1915. As I was telling Susan in the pre-interview, I knew about the NAACP and I knew about the Urban League, but I did not know about any of the organizations that she so ably describes in this well-written book. So uh, I'm always pleased that I read a book and I learn something, and I certainly did here, and I would encourage anybody who's interested in the history of racial justice, and I don't know anybody who really isn't, uh, to go out and um, read this book. But let me say uh, to Susan, thank you for coming on the show. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. Absolutely. My pleasure. So could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I am a law professor, and I teach and write in the area of legal ethics and the legal profession, and I focus on changing conceptions of lawyers' uh, responsibilities to work on social justice issues, broadly defined. Um, I have a prior history before going to law school. I worked as a community organizer and a labor organizer. And after law school, I worked for a number of years as a union side labor lawyer. So I've sort of uh, had a number of careers in my life ending in um, teaching in a law school. Well, I always like it when you're first a practitioner, you actually do the job, and then you teach people about the job. Exactly. That yes, makes I, a lot I, of sense I, to I, me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So kudos to you. Um, so let me ask you this: Why did you? You know, you're very busy. I imagine, like super busy as a law professor, and you probably do pro bono work and all that other stuff. But uh, uh, why did you write this book? I wrote this book because I, my prior work about a, a decade ago, focused on the early NAACP and as a, and and their. The the, uh, the attitudes of the lawyers who first worked for the NAACP about the tensions between their work in test case litigation campaigns and the traditional legal ethics norms of the time. Um, and while I was doing th- that project, I, I came to really see, looking at primary documents, how much of the agenda that the NAACP started with in 1910 when it was forced, first organized how much of that agenda really seemed to come from somewhere? It wasn't wasn't newly developed. Those ideas were already kind of well thought out. And it seemed to me important to figure out where those ideas had come from. So the standard story is that a group of well-meaning progressives, most of them white, got together and decided something needed to be done about the declining state of race relations in the country and they decided to form this little organization that suddenly became a big, powerful organization. And I wanted to retell the story by reaching back to de- describe the earlier efforts, the, the the enormous amount of earlier effort that had gone into developing the ideas that the NAACP would then uh, use and develop further uh, throughout the 20th century. Mm-hmm. So I started to do the research, and it was mostly... It was not a front burner project because, of course, as an academic, you need to publish early and often. And so I had (laughs) publication demands every year. But I kept working on it. And about a dozen years later, I'm embarrassed to say it took quite a while, I finally finished the project and uh, uh, got it published. And so um, it was a long process, but one that I enjoyed every moment of. Mm -hmm. We had somebody on the show recently who said that writing a book is a little bit like getting married. (laughs) <laughs> you marry your project. Like, you do kind of, uh, yeah. yes. Yeah, so yeah. you better really like yeah, it. Yeah, you better. Right. That's exactly right. Well, it turned out wonderfully. So let's talk about the book itself. You begin the book, um, again, talking about the background of these ideas by uh, talking about five key figures. Can you tell us who they were and what they did? Sure. Uh, 
I tried to pick figures that weren't people everybody already knew about and also figures who crossed between organizations so I could actually see them transmitting ideas from one organization to another. And the five figures that I picked, the first one is a man named T. Thomas Fortune. And T. Thomas Fortune founded the Afro-American League. He was a law-trained journalist. He was very well-read in political theory and very interested in political theory. And he really became sort of the visionary of what a national organizing campaign might look like. And so he saw various organizing efforts going on around the country in various regions, in various cities and local uh, arenas. And he thought, what if we bring all of these organizations together into an umbrella group that really is working on coordinating local efforts and driving them all in the same direction? And so he wrote a founding platform for this organization, which ended up being sort of the... the uh, the foundation for most other organizations later, including the NAACP, which, of course, was founded 30 years later. Mm -hmm. Um, So he's one person that I think is really important to understand. Uh, The second person I write about is a religious um, figure named Reverdy Ransom, who was a bishop in the AME Church. And he was somebody who managed to locate himself in all of the major organizations of the period, uh, and he was one of the uh, very few African-American speakers at the founding convention of the NAACP, mm-hmm. uh, and he was motivated by a social gospel perspective, um, w- by the idea that it was important uh, in doing God's will to try to bring about social justice on earth, um, and he was um, it, very important in experimenting with uh, social settlement um, communities in African-American neighborhoods. So he was had a, a, a lot of very creative, important ideas um, and was just a really interesting character in a lot of ways. So it was really fun to research and write about. Mm-hmm. Uh, the third person I talk about, I'm hoping I remember them all correctly. No, it's all right. If you don't, I know I put you on the spot here. <laughs> <laughs> I will. There are so many. There, there are many figures that yeah. come up in the book in various ways, but I tried. I was Mary Church Terrell, and she was the founding leader and three-term president of the National Association of Colored Women. And she was somebody who was born into a life in some ways of much more privilege than the other figures I read about. Her father um, had made a lot of money. He was born enslaved, but later became a very successful businessman. And he was able to afford um, sending her um, for a private education. She graduated from Overland College. She was extremely talented in languages. She studied a lot lot of languages. She spoke many languages. She spent time in Europe. So she was really of the sort of upper-class elite, the tiny Mm -hmm. upper-class elite. But but she had, because of the privilege that she felt she had inherited, um, she had a very strong commitment to social justice work and social welfare um, activism. And so she also was very important and um, an interesting person to study. Uh, she was a more moderate figure, and, and watching her transition from um, one way of thinking about um, activism to another way sort of also symbolizes the changing times and the conditions that allowed um, the, the birth of a more militant kind of approach to racial justice organizing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then the next and one is, is uh, Mary White. Mary White I'm just helping you here, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, I remember. <laughs> I got it written down. <laughs> <laughs> so Mary White Ovington... Um, is one of the is the only female member of the founding inner circle of the NAACP, mm-hmm. and she's a white social worker from New York City who heard Booker T. Washington speak about race issues pretty early on in her career and decided to commit her life to working on racial justice issues. So she lived in a settlement house in an African American community. She's the only white resident in that settlement house. Mm, And she really devoted her whole life to first settlement work. And then she became a member of the staff of the NAACP and worked for very, very little money, Uh, lived in a hotel, a a modest kind of boarding house and devoted her life to um, building the NAACP as an organization. 
and a very interesting figure, very good friends of uh, W.E. Du Bois, um, and their correspondence survives, so you can see them mm. talking to each other and sort of understand more about how they're thinking about race issues. Uh, she was a socialist, and she's always writing to Du Bois and trying to convince him to uh, share her views, and he's writing to her to explain, um, sort of educate her about race issues. Um, so she's also a very interesting figure who is very important and located in a number of key points in the development of this movement, early movement. And then the last person I write about is a man named William Buckley, and he is a reformer who's very focused on vocational and educational reform. He's a, the first African-American principal of an integrated school in New York City, and he uses that school after hours uh, to set up a vocational um, training program for African-American youth. Um, and he's really trying to think about the connections between civil rights issues and um, economic advancement, economic justice, and social welfare issues. And he also is very active in the organizations that end up becoming the National Urban League, and he's very, um, a very committed early leader of the National Urban League. So he's another interesting figure um, to use to sort of uh, see how people are thinking about the, all of the connections among various racial justice issues at the time. Mm-hmm. So the book starts with a focus on those figures, and then, of course, there are many other people who become very important mm-hmm. as the narrative uh, continues. Mm-hmm. So these are sort of representative of the founding generation. Yes, I thought so. Mm-hmm. And it was hard to decide who to focus on, um, but uh, that was the intention. So we could sort of follow some lives as there, as, as the various um, uh, pieces of the puzzle um, come together, sort of see some lives that continue mm-hmm. through, that weave through the various organizations. Mm-hmm. So one major piece of the puzzle is something that I had never heard of called the uh, National Afro-American League. Can you tell us about it? Yes. The National Afro-American League is T. Thomas Fortune's organization, and it has very grand ambitions, and it is a very, um, um, one of the more militant organizations that I write about. It really um, sees a role for both civil rights activism, so they're working on test case uh, litigation, actually rather successfully, more successfully than later organizations would because this is in the early 1880s and uh, there's sort of more room for, uh, courts are more willing to um, recognize uh, civil rights um, principles early on than later on in this period, the Nader period. Um, They also work on reform of state statutes on civil rights and they succeed in a in a few ways there with a number of state statutes. And but they also are very focused on the connections between civil rights issues and sort of a bigger long-term vision of economic justice. And, you know, they're influenced by some of the progressive political theorists of the time. And so they're, they understand racial justice as connected with um, economic justice, with redistributing wealth through democratic means they want to work in coalition with the progressive elements of the labor movement to sort of build a democratic um, movement towards um, redistributing wealth and power in the country. Um, and for that reason, the, the, the people who choose to join it are, tend to be more on the left-wing side. And it's, a, it's an ambitious organization, but it's not an organization that, has, that is able to achieve a lot of momentum or a lot of membership. And it's also very hard to run a national organization with no funds. So it, it, it collapses. <laughs> to do it at all is a miracle. It, it really was a miracle, and it was all really on um, T. Thomas Fortune. I mean, he sacrificed enormously financially. Right. Uh, he was making his living by publishing his newspaper, and really he had no he had no economic resources, and he right. he lost you know, his he fortune. Tried to, Pardon the point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He tried to use some test cases to actually support himself. And I think that also was part of the reason why the organization collapsed, because people weren't sure, you know, how much of this is going to you personally and how much of the funds that we might contribute might go towards the organization's purposes. So it was a good first try, but it didn't it didn't last very long on a national level. But it mm-hmm. did do a lot of interesting. It was a surprisingly active given 
the resource constraints. Mm-hmm. And how so does it, I was going to say, how yeah. does it relate to the, what is the sort of next institutional protagonist in the book? And that is the, um, the, the, the uh, National Afro-American Council, which is different than the National uh, Afro-American League, right? Right. Yes. Okay. Council yes. versus league. Yes. Yeah, so we're talking right. council now. Okay. Yes. So the National Afro-American Council comes right out of the Afro-American League. The league dies. There's a, a period of time goes by. There's some horrendous lynchings that occur of postmasters, African-American postmasters in southern states. And another up-and-coming religious figure, uh, Alexander Walters, who's a bishop in the AME Zion Church, which is a different church, um, calls on Fortune and says publicly in the pages of Fortune's newspaper, we need to organize nationally again. Things are getting worse, not better. We need the Afro-American League. We need to revive the Afro-American League. And Fortune at first says, I've tried. I'm discouraged. The, you know, the national will is not there. We're not ready yet to do this. But he eventually agrees to sign the call, to co-sign the call, to start a new organization. And that organization is called the Afro-American Council. And Walters takes over as the head of the Afro-American Council. And Walters has a different perspective than Fortune does. He is much more of a pragmatist. He's a middle-of-the-roader. He likes to build consensus. And he realizes that to be a strong organization, this organization needs to attract a lot of leading figures. And so he envisions the organization as one that's going to be an umbrella organization that will span a lot of ideological differences uh, among activists, among race uh, race justice activists. And so that's the the sort of model, organizing model that he espouses. And he's very successful because he's a very good organizer and he's able to bring on board most of the leading figures of the time. And he's able to keep the organization financially solvent and keep it going for a decade. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, that, that, these are really amazing accomplishments and um, not, not at all easy for him to do. But at the same time, there's a lot of internal dissension within the Afro-American Council and these the two wings of the activist movement, the more conservative wing, which is led by Booker T. Washington or exemplified by Booker T. Washington is on one side and then the sort of radicals, people like Reverend E. Ransom are on the other side and they continually clash within the organization and in some ways that slows the organization down a lot. It means that they can only work on some issues, a sort of narrow band of really pragmatic, mostly defensive civil rights kinds of, um, you know, defending the onslaughts on uh, civil rights issues that are arising at the time. Uh, And they don't have, they don't have the broader vision of a long-term theory of what economic or social or racial justice will look like because people in the organization disagree so deeply and fundamentally on that question. Um, But they do, they do some very, interesting, good work. They try to sponsor some test case litigation. Uh, They try to challenge the uh, grandfather clause provisions uh, in um, Louisiana and the uh, Constitution, the newly enacted Constitution, which pretty much explicitly prohibits African-Americans from voting in blatant disregard of the Reconstruction Era amendments. They try very hard to challenge that, um, that provision. They don't get very far with it. Um, the case isn't really handled that well, uh, and they run out of funds, so they default at one point in the case. Um, at the same time, they give Booker T. Washington the idea to also file a test case, and he files a separate case secretly with nobody knowing he's behind it, mm. uh, challenging the Alabama grandfather clause provision. He hires a very talented lawyer named Wilford Smith to litigate that case for for him, and that case actually goes further. Um, Smith is able to force Merritt's consideration of the case in, before the U.S. Supreme Court. And Oliver Wendell Holmes, who's a justice on the Supreme Court and writes a majority opinion, ends up having to say, this, the, the claim here, the challenge here, is one of a grave constitutional harm. But we, the U.S. Supreme Court, cannot take on all of the constitutions of the southern states. So we're powerless to do anything about this issue. We're going to call it a political question one that the U.S. Supreme Court can't do anything about. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's a terrible dodge in a certain way. Um, 
but it also is an acknowledgement that there is a grave constitutional harm going on. Um, so in some ways, that's a, that's a success. It, it is a, a step forward. It's not a victory, certainly. And really, there's no victory until, really, until the Voting Rights Act of 1965 finally um, gets passed. So Holmes is right in a certain way that this is a question that has to be solved by the political process. Um, but that's one of their accomplishments. They also did a lot of defensive work. They had a kind of sophisticated legislative department in Washington, D.C., where their members who were placed in various civil service positions were watching what was happening um, in terms of national legislation. And there were a lot of things going on that were very bad news for the racial justice cause. And they were working to stop those kinds of legislative initiatives. And they did that fairly successfully. And they had a, a, a affirmative legislative platform as well, which went nowhere, of course, uh, given the conditions of the time. Mm-hmm. But they still tried awfully hard. They were still very dedicated and very, um, you know, it took really a surprising extent um, just because they believed in the justice of the cause. They were going to continue to push on all of these uh, national legislative matters. So they did a lot. They did a lot of things, and they 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 trained a lot of leaders. They raised the money. They worked on um, various ways of um, organizing and planning strategy and building local branches that would work in a coordinated way with a national effort. And I think they're also very a very important organization in understanding um, how the NAACP came to be born. Even though people tend historians have tended to discount. The organization saying, well, it was just dominated by Booker T. Washington, and he wasn't allowing uh, anything interesting to happen on the racial justice organizing front. But I actually think if you go back and really look carefully at the primary sources and really trace through what these activists were doing, they were doing a lot, and they were not co-opted by Washington by any means at all. So that's another really important organization. Mm -hmm. And when did they fold exactly and why? You remember? They, I, I'm sorry, I can't recall. Yeah. Well, they sort of lost steam around 1909 or so, and some of their leading members went off to form other political organizations. But what also happened was the NAACP start, issued this call for a founding meeting, and the idea really was, and Bishop uh, Walters was involved in the organizing committee for the NAACP, very involved very active. Uh, The plan really was to take all of the various organizations that were working on similar issues but really weren't Mm -hmm. working well together. So the other really important player in the story is the Niagara Movement, which W.E. Du Bois had founded in 1905, taking the radicals out of the Afro-American Council and moving to their own organization because they got so fed up with Washington. Mm-hmm. So they were working on issues, and so was the National, uh, the National um, Afro-American Council. And the idea was, let's start afresh with a new organization. We'll merge all of these efforts. We'll bring everybody back together in the same organization. And so one of the organizations that merges into the NAACP is the Afro-American Council. Another one is the Niagara Movement. Mm-hmm. And then all these white progressives come in as well who were not involved in the earlier movements. Mm-hmm. And they bring... a social capital and funds and mm-hmm. access to fundraising outlets and that kind of thing. And this new effort gets started in 1910. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I think I understand that well. Uh, the, the next group that you deal with is before the um, Niagara movement uh, is the uh, National Association of Colored Women. Is that right? That's what I have yes. in my notes here. Yeah. Could you yes. tell us a little bit about them? Yes. So the NACW typically when people – talk about this early period, they describe a set of civil rights organizations, and then the NACW isn't part of that description. <laughs> they're kind of off, a, you know, segregated into their, they're doing social welfare work or charity work. They're right. not a civil rights organization. Uh-huh. And I actually think uh, telling the story the right way really requires including the NACW as a very important part of a social justice, a racial justice agenda that spans both social welfare issues and legal equality issues. And certainly the leaders of the NACW, like Mary Church Terrell and many others, fully articulated that vision of their organization. So they're both working on building social welfare institutions, filling in the gaps that the sort of nascent progressive era 
um, social welfare state um, is starting to provide in white communities, but explicitly denying African Americans. And so these are local activists who are working to build those institutions in African American communities. Um, and so that they also saw their work as having a political dimension and as sort of building the state. They're building the progressive social welfare state. Um, and since they don't have the help of public resources to do it, they're going to do it on their own separately. But they also, when they can, they, they reach out to public institutions. They reach out to schools and to local government and to juvenile justice systems and all of the rest of it and say, you need to fund or you need to take responsibility for these institutions that we're building. So it's another political strategy. It's another way of moving forward in this sort of broad uh, agenda of issues that require attention in order to advance racial justice. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they're also very important and they're also incredibly important leaders, very experienced and good at fundraising and turnout and building organizations and working. There are many differences. They have the same ideological differences that the Afro-American Council does, but they have an explicit rule that we're just going to continue to work together. We're just going to put our differences you know, aside and we're going to work on the issues that we share a commitment to. And we won't let ideology get in the way of, of making, you know, of, of making progress. And they're very good at that. And they're actually much bigger and they are growing at a much faster rate than these other organizations because they kind of don't get bogged down in the, in the mm-hmm. ideology and in the frustration in the legal realm. And they they're, you know, able to make concrete progress and, and show results for their work and that attracts uh, membership and, and they're really, they, they really are a movement. They're, they're growing exponentially during this period. Mm-hmm. So I think they're an important part of the story of these precursor organizations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are they in relation to the settlement movement? You know, the settlement movement? Really? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. They, they're very, there's many, there are many connections, both and it's not just the women's activists. It's also activists like Reverdy Ransom and many others and Booker T. Washington, too. So the settlement movement really spans. Um, it crosses the Atlantic. There's, uh, there's a settlement activity in uh, England and in Europe and in the U.S. And there are uh, very important meetings where people get together um, from both sides of the Atlantic to talk about their ideas for the social settlement movement. There are, of course, the white social settlement leaders that we know very well, like Jane Addams, but there are also African-American leaders who are also involved in the movement, and Jane Addams, there's a relationship between them and Jane Addams and others. Um, and so another part of what these um, activists are doing, the African-American Women's Club activists, they're building social settlements and um, trying to fund them and bringing various kinds of the, the same kinds of things that white social settlements were doing in immigrant white communities. They're doing the same kind of activities in African-American communities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They, they sort of look similar in the sense that they are both practically oriented. And I should also say that I have a uh, settlement cookbook. Oh. <laughs> I, I <do. laughs> yeah. So, and boy, did I need it back when I was young. Um, so, so then Good fundraising idea. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, the, so the National Association of Colored Women seems to be more more about doing than talking, which is, I think, probably always a good thing in an organization. But uh, we come to another organization, which is uh, led by, uh, I, I guess it's Du Bois, uh, and that is the the you mentioned them before the the Niagara Movement. Can you tell us a little bit about them? Yes, the Niagara Movement is the the movement or the organization that grows out of the frustration of the radicals within the Afro-American Council. They try to work within the Afro-American Council. Um, Booker T. Washington is trying to sort of pull strings and trying to manipulate the leadership process of the organization to get his people in place, and he's really attacking uh, his political opponents, and he's very suspicious of democratic process. He doesn't want to let things just develop as they will. And so eventually all of the radicals get fed up um, with the Afro-American Council and uh, they uh, together, there's not only Du Bois who comes up with the idea, but some other very important people too, like Frederick McGee, who is at one point the lawyer for the Afro-American Council. They leave and they form a new organization called the Niagara Movement. And 
the Niagara movement has a m- much more militant approach to things, and they go back to a lot of the vision of T. Thomas Fortune from the Afro-American League, including the idea that the work on racial justice that needs to be done should span both civil rights, law, formal equality kinds of issues, and also social welfare and economic justice issues. So they're trying, again, to do this very ambitious range of activities. Um, They're kind of an interesting organization because when they're founded, they exclude women. Mm -hmm. They have a a membership rule that says this is only for men, and uh, women can neither become members nor even go to our meetings. And there are complicated reasons why they might have adopted that rule. Some of it is just plain sexism. Some of it is a sense, as conditions got worse, um, of the need to really um, enforce the, the manly activity of agitating for civil rights. So there's a lot of gender talk. This is about protecting our manhood rights and protecting the women of the race. So there's sort of some of that that's you know, comes from a gendered perspective, mm-hmm. um, gendered militancy perspective. And there's also a possibility that they're worried because the women of the NACW have good relationships with Booker T. Washington, because he's also very interested in institution building. They're somewhat worried that the women may, you know, quote unquote, be spies for Washington and they don't want that to happen. So for whatever reasons, they don't let women become members. And this does not go over well with women activists. Um, at all. And so about a year later, um, women forced Du Bois uh, into a meeting where he ends up having to agree that women can be members, but they can be members in their own separate women's department. Mm-hmm. So there's sort of this ironic separate but equal treatment uh, of women within the Niagara movement. I shouldn't really um, laugh about that, but it is yeah. sort of ironic, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. So many ironies. Yeah. So, but but the women activists are very um, the the women who do choose to join. And many women don't don't, but many some do, um, and they are very key figures. Um, m- m- people who are more probably on the more radical militant side of the political divide, and many of them end up going from working or being members of the Niagara movement to being really the founding leaders of the local branches of the NAACP. And they take their experience and their activist commitments, and they really build um, very impressive membership, um, you know, membership chapters of the NAACP that allow that organization to really get going in a really powerful way when it's formed. So they're also an important part of the story. Mm-hmm. So this brings us right to the cusp of the creation of the uh, NAACP and the National Urban League, and that's a big discussion. And, and you spend a lot of time on it in the book. Can you? Sort of take us from the, the, this moment, uh, we just stopped with the um, Niagara movement, to the creation of these two institutions and explain the lineages, that is the sort of direct personal relationships that were involved, the kind of continuity between these organizations and the NAACP and the National Urban League. I know it's a lot. but Yeah, absolutely. No, I, there's, there's a lot of continuity there, and I think that the standard accounts just kind of ignore ignore how much the NAACP really is emerging of these other efforts into one coordinated, um, you know, really more powerful uh, effort. So the the organization ends up being founded. There's a terrible race riot in Springfield, Illinois, that comes to national attention um, because this is the birthplace of Abraham Lincoln, after all, and... um, some uh, white progressives who were not so involved in racial justice organizing or really not at all involved suddenly have this sort of moment of consciousness developing where they realize this is really an important thing. Uh, so Mary White Ovington uh, gathers together this little group of uh, her friends who are progressives who are working on various causes and suggests founding a new organization and there's enthusiasm for doing that. And then she immediately goes to her contacts like Bishop Walters, who she knows, uh, like Bulkley, who she knows, uh, Du Bois, and invites them to join as well. And through this sort of coordinated effort, a um, initial plan to hold an organizing meeting takes place, and that meeting takes place, and uh, there's a transcript of all the uh, speeches at the meeting, so it's very interesting um, to kind of watch that organization get going. 
of course, a lot of the experienced African-American activists are actually quite suspicious mm-hmm. of these newcomers who are coming to sort of take over their efforts. And there's, there's a lot of suspicion and a lot of negative feelings that are going on in that meeting as well. Um, but it makes it through that first meeting and, or, you know, committees get set up and they start working on a second meeting. The first issue they decide to take on as a national test case is the grandfather clause issue. And they're taking that directly from the Afro-American Council. Mm-hmm. Um, they're taking over the Afro-American Council's litigation agenda. And they are able to litigate a case called U.S. v. Gwyn, and they win. And this is important in many ways. Um, it invalidates a grandfather clause in Oklahoma. It doesn't really have a lot of effects on the ground, but it does show that it's possible to win a test case in the U.S. Supreme Court and at least to get the principle, to correct the injustice in the principle that's being articulated. Um, So the court says it is unconstitutional to disenfranchise voters on the basis of race. Um, And so that builds a lot of enthusiasm and, you know, um, membership for the organization. And the organization also takes on a whole lot of other local race-based um, cases that involve injustice, especially in the criminal justice context, some very important cases where terrible, terrible wrongs were being done, and they start to uh, develop their agenda in that way as well. And they also they adopt a, an organizing structure that's based on the advice they get from Du Bois and Walters. And Walters and Du Bois are both members of the committee that's going to design the structure for the organization, and they say, and what the sort of white um, abolitionists, the older the older generation involved in founding the NAACP, they see an organization that's going to be a, top he- a letterhead, top-heavy organization with uh, a lot of prominent names, and then every now and then the organization will issue a proclamation on a certain issue and send it out on their letterhead, and people will pay attention to it because these are important people. Uh, they don't want, they're, they're very skeptical about giving a lot of power to local branches. They're afraid people will take off in crazy directions. Um, but Du Bois and, and Walters, because they've had all of this experience building organizations of their own, say, that's not going to work. If we don't develop grassroots power in local communities all around the country, we, politica, we need that political power or we'll never go anywhere. And they convince the early organizing committee of the NAACP to set up a structure that does allow for very low uh, dues so that people can actually afford to join and that really encourages the, the joining of massive numbers of people at the local level. And that's really, once that structure is put in place and people can join for a dollar a year, the membership numbers start to really grow quickly. And so the organization starts to take off at that point. So there are a lot, a lot of ideas that come really directly from the experience of these earlier organizations that are key to the NAACP's success. And then at the same time, there's this other strand of work that involves the social welfare and economic advancement work. Um, and when the NAACP is founded, their, the original plan of the leaders is to do that kind of work as well. But at the same time, the National Urban League is being founded, and that's founded by a group of um, another different group of leaders. There's much overlap between the two organizations, but that organization is um, much friendlier towards Booker T. Washington. The NAACP and Booker T. Washington are really at odds with each other. So it's a more conservative organization, but that allows for a lot more fundraising. There's a lot of big donors that contribute to the National Urban League. Uh, And they get going right around the same time. And the leaders of the two organizations end up sitting down and saying we have this, the, 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 the range of issues we need to work on, the jurisdiction that we have here is massive. We have all of these issues, and we need to sort of specialize so that we can get really good at working on the issues that we are assigned. Mm-hmm. And so they agree to divide up the territory. The NAACP is going to work on political and civil rights issues and use legal strategies, and the National Urban League is going to work on social welfare, social issues, economic issues, and use more what they call voluntarist strategies. In other words, um, appeals in the private sector that don't have the force of law. They're not going to be trying as hard to 
to change the legal structure. Uh, and the two organizations kind of proceed for a while with that division of responsibility. But one of the things I think is important to realize is it was just really a pragmatic decision. It's not an ideological decision. It's not saying these two things are separate or different or one is more important than the other, but just that there's so much to do and we need to kind of get more specialized in the way we work on our issues. So the book sort of ends at that point mm-hmm. uh, with the, you know these two organizations poised now to take over uh, this massive, um, very ambitious and very challenging agenda uh, in the 1910s. Mm-hmm. I guess I find it remarkable that they were able to, these two organizations were able, both of which are still with us, were able to gel yes. at this moment with all those big egos and the different agendas and these other things. I mean, I know I have studied uh, in an no, entirely different context how a lot of little socialist parties at about the same time could not ever get their acts together. And, yes. and yeah. um, they, you know, and they suffered, you know, they would form coalitions, but, you know, there was always the left Spartacus and the right Spartacus and the center right. Spartacus and there were every kinds of Spartacus and there was never a Spartacus union or but if someone's going to write in and tell me there was, but uh, right. it didn't last very long if there was. Uh, and so it, it, I just find it kind of remarkable. I, I guess my question is, well, why then? Why did, why did the truly national organizations of this sort gel at that moment? I think that's a complicated question. Um, I think part of it had to do with this history of experimentation. Part of it had to do with some national prominent kinds of events that occurred uh, right around the time that really sparked people's attention and really caused them to change their minds about what would be necessary. So, for example, Mary Church Terrell, who had always been very moderate, somewhat conservative, very interested in... Um, you know, staying on the good side of Booker T. Washington and she had a relationship with Roosevelt and she was invited to the White House and she would write about, you know, those kinds of things. When uh, the Brownsville affair occurred, which was uh, a an incident in which African-American soldiers were accused of having uh, fired their weapons and injured um, uh, people uh, in a barroom brawl. And uh, Roosevelt just fired uh, these were all of the the entire battalion just said, you know, you I'm discharging you dishonorably without even investigating what the real facts were underlying mm-hmm. that event. This happened in 1906. And to, to Mary Church Terrell, that was the final straw mm-hmm. um, because these were decorated veterans who had fought bravely. Right. And so she just really uh, at that point, she just sort of changed her mind about uh, what the right way to go about um, racial progress was. And she kind of abandons her concern about alienating Booker T. Washington. And she joins the NAACP as a founding member and becomes very, very active. And Washington writes to her husband, who's a judge in Washington, D.C., who Washington got appointed to this judgeship and said, you know, you better be careful because if your wife starts doing this, I'm gonna, I'm not going <laughs> to feel very good about you as a couple anymore. And he doesn't stop her. Right? So there's sort of a, a tipping point right around uh, 1906, 1907, 1908. There, the Atlanta riot occurs in 1906 as well. There are a number of uh, nationally um, uh, visible events that occur that cause the the sort of in between the middle of the road uh, folks who are kind of listening to Booker T. Washington's ideas about sort of steady patient progress without being militant, mm-hmm. they sort of change their minds. So they all move to the NAACP or other similar organizing efforts. And so there's, there's sort of a new moment arises right around that time. But without all of this careful work that occurred before, that moment would have come and gone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that's a, I mean, to a historian, especially one who is convinced that uh, most things are continuous rather than really breaks, uh, that, that's music to my ears. I, I, think, <laughs> yes. I think that's well, right. Think, yes. Yeah. There are breaks and there's, there are continuities as yeah. well. Right. right. That's good. Well, thank yeah. you for mining all yeah. this. Um, let, let me ask a, a kind of more contemporary question. And, and, and you, it may be hard for you to answer. You can't answer it all. I don't know. You may think it's a bad question. But people today uh, wonder about the role of the NAACP. There's sort of active debate about what the heck it should do now. We live in a, an era in which obviously there's still lots of problems. Let's just put it generically. Right. But, uh, you know, uh, there's also been a lot of change and improvement and diversification among the African-American community and so on and so forth. Uh, what could people who are interested in the NAACP learn from your book? 
a hard well, question, I know, but no, I, I actually have lots of thoughts on that yeah. on that question, and I don't mind thinking in presentist terms. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> Especially what I'm if asking. If a historian asked me, you know, to do my so. colleague, yeah, my colleagues wouldn't like that very much, but you know, I, I know. I'm a fan of relevance. Exactly. So let's see right. how is this relevant. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I think the NAACP understands a lot of the lessons of this story very well, even if you know the, the, the details of the story are somewhat lost, but really. Um, having heard many leaders from the NAACP speaking on its understanding of the future agenda, that agenda really has to spend not only protecting civil and and legal rights issues, ensuring citizenship equality, ensuring that the law works in a just way and is um, that the principles of equality continue to be enforced. Um, but it also includes thinking creatively and exper- you know, experimenting with ways of continuing to work on economic and social welfare issues. Mm-hmm. And so I think um, you know, that's an important part of the agenda going forward. That was an agenda, a key part of the agenda back uh, you know, 100 years ago, and it's still an unfulfilled part of that agenda. And there are a lot of people who criticize the NAACP and criticize the civil rights movement, generally saying, well, you were just focused on civil and uh, legal equality, on formal equality, and you weren't really, you didn't care whether you were making a material difference in people's everyday lives. You know, you allowed this economic inequality to continue to exist and just put all your focus on on legal and civil rights. And I I think that's a really unfair Mm -hmm. criticism. Mm -hmm. Um, That's because all they're looking at is that work. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Yeah. Well, it is kind of the marquee work. I mean, you know, when people think about the NAACP and also they think about the civil rights movement, they think about lawyers and they think about people who sit around counters, right, and are asked to leave but don't. And they think about Brown versus Board of Education, which I'm happy to say is a Kansan, you know, Speak. You know, I'm from Kansas, <laughs> right. so right, so that's right. good for Kansas. But that's right. th- those are the marquee things, you know, and so right. they don't know about all this other stuff that went on. Exactly, exactly. It's a it's harder to tell a, a simple story about you know how complex and rich and diverse all of these different efforts were. But before you you know criticize, you need to understand that there was so much going on, really, all through the 20th century and all the way back into the late 19th century too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I mean, we talked earlier about the settlement movement, and that was really incredibly important for, I don't know how to put this exactly, but not only assimilating people, but also teaching them how to live well. I don't know how else to put it, you know, like they, they, you know, I look at this cookbook and it tells me how to cook and that's definitely something I needed. But, (laughs) but, you know, this is something that I like the settlement movement, as far as I can tell, is just entirely forgotten. Like people don't know about it. You do, I do, but nobody else does. Right. Right. And similarly with all this work that the National Urban League has done and is doing, I just think it's, you know, they hear Barack Obama say, well, you know, and you say that I, I was a community organizer and they, and a lot of people roll their eyes at that. They don't know what it is. Like they have right. no idea what it is. I remember what Giuliani said about it. Something really snide and awful. Right. Uh, right. But you know, like, <laughs> what, what is that exactly? I mean, they want to hear, you know, they want to hear lawyers and they want to have big cases and they want Supreme Court and they want Nita Tonenberg to go, you know, talk about it. But right. the trenches look very different. <laughs> right. They do look really different. And sometimes, you know, right now, given what the U.S. Supreme Court has just done in Shelby County, uh, the voting rights case. Right. You know, sometimes it, it, there are times when it's, that's a good strategy where you can imagine making progress by having the court announce new principles. There are other times when that may not be a good strategy, but there's still a lot of other ways to continue to work on, you know, activism. And so I think that's an important thought as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I know that, for, for example, that there are, uh, educational initiatives in African-American communities, some of which I know just know a little bit about, and they're absolutely terrific. They get absolutely no press, right? right? But there are people basically sacrificing their lives to educate. And basically, I mean, let me right. put it just very plainly, being a young African-American male is really a bad deal today. It's a totally bad deal. And there are a lot of people whom I know are really working hard on this subject, and they're not going to the courts or anything like that. They're right. working in the trenches. And right. I really admire those people. But But it's, again, that part of the story is like, What's a community organizer? You know, make some right. joke about it. You know, it's like not right. right. So and lots of volunteer organizations and things like this. You can get involved. Right. I know that the paper in my hometown here in Northampton, like every Saturday or Sunday, they list all these volunteer opportunities. And, and, and there are a lot of people that are doing those things. Right. And they are forgotten. Yeah. And, yeah. and there's the key, I think, is both to be involved in those kinds of activities, but also be working on making the connection and preserving the gains by actually – you know, forcing the 
the government, the, right. the public institutions of government for taking on those responsibilities as well. So there's yeah. also, there is a need to sort of connect that work to the, uh, the, the, the structures of the state. Right. And, and, this, and to me, this is not a Republican-Democrat issue. I mean, these things right. are out there, and you have to teach people how to use them. Right. I mean, the Republican, yeah. you know, the, the, the legislator voted them. Like, here are these things that can help you. And if people don't know about them, that's not a Republican or Democrat issue. That's a public education issue. Right. Right. You right. tell these people how to help themselves. Right. And yeah, so it's actually Booker T. Washington and Du Bois together at last. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And they and those two men have completely agreed on all of these points. They, yeah. you know, they agreed on a lot. They didn't, they, their personalities clashed and their, some of their approaches clashed. But on these questions about building, capacity and communities and, you know, working on many fronts at the same time, they, they yeah, agreed. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's great. It's a, it's a terrific story you've told. And I, I really, I really love the book and I'd love to, you're very good talking about it. Let me say that. Oh, well, um, thank you. Really I, I so appreciate it. the chance. To, yeah, to absolutely. Let me, uh, let me uh, ask you, uh, we've taken up a lot of your time already, but let me ask you uh, our traditional final question on the new books network. And that is, what are you working on now? Well, I'm going to continue to build on this work, and one of the holes in my story, and I knew it was a hole, but I didn't, I, I couldn't do the research then, was really trying to understand uh, the role of African American women who went to law school in teeny tiny amounts in this period. Really, before mm. 1920, you could count on two hands mm. all of the women who actually African American women who graduated from law school in the United States. Mm. And I think that's an interesting part. And what I really want to do is sort of talk about the NACW, the, the women's club movement, and compare it with the white women's reform movement from the same era where there were more law-trained activists. They didn't always practice law, but they thought in legal terms about strategies like Florence Kelly for the National Consumers League, you know, who's also a social settlement worker, and she's also, she sits on the board of the NAACP. So people definitely know about each other's work, but the work proceeds in different ways. And I, mm-hmm. I think that has important consequences to the later construction of the sort of New Deal uh, state. And so I'm going to try to explore some of those issues in my next project. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like a very good, uh, a very good project. And I hope that um, when you're done with it, it becomes a book and you can come back and talk to us. Wait, I actually have one final question. And that is, yeah. uh, has the NAACP or the National Urban League uh, called you yet to speak to their national conventions? Well, they should. Um, they haven't, but yes, feel free to invite them to. Well, I, I I'm telling them to it. right now. <laughs> well, um, one of the endorsers of my book is um, the the president and executive offer, uh, officer, the chief executive officer, Ben Jealous. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's partly because uh, his his uh, spouse uh, is a colleague of mine here at uh, oh, yeah. Washington College of Law. Uh-huh. So we have lots of interconnections. Yeah, well, that's good. Um, well, yeah, well, yeah. I think that you have a message for them that they need to hear. And I, oh, I, hope good. That they, I hope that they invite you to talk to them. So let me say this. Uh, you're listening to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network. And uh, I want to first thank Susan Carl for coming on the show and talking about her terrific book, Defining the Struggle, National Organizing for Racial Justice, 1880 to 1915. So thank you, Susan. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. And I want to thank everybody who listens to this podcast. I hope that you guys have a great week. Okay, bye-bye.